Hello, hello and good afternoon, or good evening, or whatever time it is, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the weekly review of Atlas Info Live. This is the program where we will take time to go over the content which we shared in our last two live streams on Wednesday and Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We uh, do this week in review for <clears throat> all of you who live in different time zones, but who would still like to be able to interact and participate, ask questions, make comments, etc. cetera. Um, despite the fact that, of course, Wednesdays and Fridays lectures are available online, they're on YouTube and on Facebook, you can, of course, rewatch them. But it's always it's always nice to have the option to be able to participate live, and that's why we we do these uh, these review programs on Monday for your benefit. In the chat and on the screen are the links to join the. Um, the StreamYard chat, not the chat, the, the StreamYard stream. <laughs> so if you follow that link, whether you're on a computer or a tablet or a smartphone, you should be able to follow that link, follow the instructions, and you'll be, uh, we'll be able to add you uh, as if it was a Zoom call, as if any other live stream on YouTube or anything else, you'll be, you'll be a participant. You can ask questions, make comments, easier than typing, let's say. So without further ado, we may as well uh, get into our first topic for tonight, which is we thought, wouldn't it be nice if people had a short list or a laundry list of practices that they can refer to and perhaps used to schedule or just to serve as a reference as they go about their their journey to awakening and self-realization just a reference to be able to put into context maybe prioritize even some of the practices which are crucial and some practices which are less crucial, potentially beneficial, but certainly some of the practices we'll be discussing shortly fall into the category of, how shall we say, additional, not necessarily superfluous, but not what we would consider core practices. <clears throat> By core practices, we mean those practices which are essential and which form the bedrock of any true esoteric journey. The first one of these 
is of course self-observation and uh, the Buddhists refer to this as mindfulness and you probably will have heard that term uh, very often. What we're going to do by the way first is go over these very quickly and provide the complete list or as complete as could be at this moment and then we will delve a little bit into each with some detail but certainly not exhaustive detail because of the uh, the time uh, constraints that we are under the second uh, core practice is self-remembering if self-observation is observing your three brains being mindful one eye in one eye out being present self-remembering is the act of remembering that you're not alone you're not an eye that your true self the observer needs to be involved in that first practice of self-observation what's more the tests challenges and ordeals that we face they're being orchestrated by our divine mother and we will get into that in a little bit of a little bit more detail in just a moment the third core practice is pranayama pranayama means breath control and it is a core practice because it is essential to circulate the sexual force particularly for those who are practicing uh, scientific chastity meaning abstention from orgasm even couples who are regularly transmuting the sexual force with sexual alchemy they also need to practice pranayama and why that is we'll get into in just in uh, just a moment of course fourth on the list without should be come should come as no surprise is meditation meditation there's a lot has been said about meditation and a lot of meditation practices are shall we say meditation in name only there's a specific kind of meditation called retrospection which is of particular value to us on the path and we will go over it in some detail next is transformation of impressions this is a this is one which <clears throat> we might say is intimately related to to self-observation but strangely it is one which receives very little mention most of the time the notion that impressions are food and that if we have a digestive system to digest our food to be able to extract the nutrients well then surely we require a metaphysical digestive system to uh, digest impressions to be able to extract the self-evident experiential knowledge from those experiences and so we'll be going into that with uh, in in more detail in a moment next we have mantra prayer and runes these we put into one bullet point because all of this relates to practices involving sound vibration and the runes take 
this to the next level. Well, mantras, if we include the visualization of uh, chakras, as we perform mantras, the sounds related to the individual chakras. And then runes takes that an, an even another step where the physical body becomes part of the instrument that is being tuned and attuned and is playing the sound, is becoming the sound. We'll, we'll explain how that works in, a, in just a moment. Next, we have astral projection and dream yoga. This is a core practice because it relates to awakening the consciousness. If we cannot awake, if we cannot awaken in the astral plane, it stands to reason that it will be very difficult, if not impossible, for us to awaken in the causal plane, which is the sixth dimension, which is where we need to awake in order to be awake. Next, we have sexual alchemy. This comes relatively low on the, on the list, and that may surprise you considering how much importance and how much intensity with which Gnostics um, discuss it. The reason why it's relatively low on the list because everything that comes before it can be done by a bachelor or a bachelorette, a single person. And it is important to realize just how many practices we have at our disposal that are core practices that do not require a monogamous sexual relationship. Now, of course, if we do find ourselves so blessed as to have such a relationship in our life, well then, sexual alchemy comes into play. Next, we have the use of incense or essential oils for smudging, cleansing our, our space. And then finally, again, it may surprise you that this is last on our list of core practices. We have esoteric study. Study of scriptures, study of lectures, etc. Study uh, uh, under masters and so forth. Uh, and again, we, we will get into why it's located where it is on this list. Because this list really is a kind of weighted or, or uh, prioritized list. Then we have what we call additional practices. And as we go through these, maybe play a little game with yourself and try to identify which ones on the right-hand column are the ones that you read about or see about or hear about the most, especially on places like Facebook and you know, New Age groups and in other so-called spiritual groups. How many of the practices on the left get mentioned versus how many practices on the right? Now, again, these are not negative in any way, but these are additional practices. And some of them, like the first one, could very easily be put into the core practices. For example, nature walks, going into nature. This, 
for all intents and purposes, can and should be part of your core practice, spending time in nature. So why isn't it under, under the core practices? Well, some people live in big cities. Some people, due to certain circumstances around the world, are living in lockdown. Others are shut-ins, or they have, they're suffering from medical conditions, or disabilities, or other circumstances which really prevent them from getting out and spending time in nature in a quality in natural environment. It is important for us not to <clears throat> it is important for us not to include in the core practices very good and important practices that might make individuals feel left out or shut out because of some disability or because of their circumstances or because of their geographic location. If someone's living in the heart of Tokyo and it takes them at least 45 minutes to an hour to get to something that resembles nature, and they're unable to do so on a regular basis. We don't want them to feel as though they are uh, hamstrung. Because of course, it is possible to advance on the path without this practice. And, and we will get into, or we will discuss a, um, uh, a little bit what nature walks are in, in a more meaningful way because it relates to meditation it relates to mindfulness and self-observation it's really just an extension or an expansion of those core practices it's just changing the environment in which you're doing those core practices next again this could easily be part of the core practices listening to classical and ins and or inspirational music and when we mean listening we mean listening not having on in the background, not listening in the car, not, you know, cooking and having classical music on. And yeah, yeah, I listened to classical music today. No, but actually sitting in a chair, closing your, or, or lying down in, in, in a comfortable position, closing your eyes and really focused and concentrated listening, being present completely. And if you do this with music such as Beethoven or Mozart, or Wagner, or Liszt, or any of the great classical composers. Uh, and indeed, if you if you listen to the uh, any of the first seven albums of Enigma, you can find a, a great deal of benefit if you fo really focus and concentrate on not only the music but the lyrics. Cassandra has a comment here. She says, "When I lived in a major city, a concrete jungle, I found a posted garden park on a rooftop." open to the public. It was my access to nature. So helpful. Well, there you go. And we're not going to take anything away from your experience or, or you know, uh, in a rooftop garden or any garden for that matter, or botanical garden. If, if you have access to a botanical garden or to the individual who's in Tokyo, <laughs> is in the heart of Tokyo, they can go to a Zen temple. Because a Zen garden will have a beautiful 
expression, even though it's completely man-made. It's, it's, it's the result of artifice. However, it is done in such a way that is completely in tune with the characters and the laws of nature such that it, 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 it is expressing the highest or one of the highest expressions of nature that is possible. If a, if a Zen master, gardener, is the one who created it and was in a total state of Zen meditation while they did it, while they, they it unfolded, because Zen gardens are not exactly planned. They grow. Yes, honors, uh, honors nature by man's hand. So there are gardens where you go to where it's clearly, yeah, they might be aesthetically beautiful, but you can really tell that the, that nature is being forced into a kind of box that is largely the product of uh, some human being's ego mind. And then there are other gardens you go to where they're, they're kind of messy. There doesn't really seem to be, there certainly isn't any, what the, it doesn't appear to be any logical or rational or planned or, or landscaped reason to it. It sort of just is, but but in those gardens, when they're done properly, again, mindfully, honoring the beings, the plants and the stones and the water, etc., and what, what is best for them, when you enter that space, you're entering a space of love because it was created in service to those beings by a master gardener. And so when you create space for the sake of the beings to be able to achieve their highest expression, they beam. They're, they're, they achieve their highest expression of self-actualization. On Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's the, that's the pinnacle for a soul. To be all that it can be. So when you, as a gardener, Listen to your heart. Listen to your Divine Mother. And you feel into the beings. Because every, every plant, every rock, every water feature, everything that you're doing there has... You're dealing with monads. You're dealing with souls. You're dealing with beings. We've told the story before of uh, working with our um, colleague... Wolfgang Amelung, he's the inventor of uh, indoor ecosystems. And he also does landscaping, backyard gardens, etc. And uh, we've told the story before how we were working with him and, um, and his other young uh, fellow, that his helper, uh, Murphy. And the three of us were... <laughs> We're putting these huge boulders into place, these huge stones. 
at the base of what amounted to like a three-tiered kind of pyramidal design in the backyard. So the biggest stones obviously went at the bottom. And uh, these were what they call two-man boulders. But of course, Wolfgang's in his 60s. <laughs> and, uh, and Murphy is a, uh, a young fellow who's perhaps not, not the most uh, 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 buff. So it was, uh, it, it was uh, quite a chore getting these stones into place. However, however, once we had them all in a row along the base of this pyramid, and it wasn't a complete pyramid. It was just, we just say that it was like the feeling that you got from it was like a step pyramid, like a Mayan pyramid. That was the feeling that you got. And we had all these boulders in a row. And then by this point, it was, it was dark and it was raining. But there was enough, it just, there was enough light coming in from the house and everything that, that we obviously could, we could see what we did. But more importantly, we, you could, you could feel it. And there they were. You have to be able to use your imagination and recognize these boulders had been sitting on pallets wrapped in plastic on the back lot of some landscape supply company for months, if not years. They'd been wrapped in plastic, sitting on a pallet, just haphazardly piled up in, 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 in these like piles. And now they were all in a row. They were all they were all facing upright and facing forward. I don't know if you realize this, but stones have a face. Stones have chakras. They have a crown chakra, and they have a root chakra. They have a front and they have a back. And you can feel that when you're sensitive and when you're working with them and you're really present and aware. So there they were, these boulders that had been sitting all which way, upside down and backwards with their face down and everything else for years wrapped in plastic. But now they were all sitting in this row, face forward, upright. They were like, They were like a beautiful, proud row of soldiers standing on guard. They had given their life new meaning and purpose, and they were beaming. You could feel it. They were, they were proud. They were, they were filled with purpose, filled with, with, with vigor. They were alive in a way that they hadn't felt for years. We gave them that. We gave them that. Because we gave them that, now when you go to that garden, you are hit with everything. You are hit with everything that those stones and those plants and the water and everything that is in that garden, you're hit with everything that they have to give. Because we put all that we could give into that garden. And, all, and what we 
could give is exactly what Cassandra said. Our knowledge, our intuition, but most importantly, our honor and respect and recognition that beings simply want to be all that they can be. To, to create a space that a being can express itself to its fullest, highest potential. That is a space of love that you've created. And if you create a space of love for an innocent monad, an elemental of nature, that elemental will give back because that element, that elemental will be, that, soul, that spirit of nature will be all that it can be and will make great use of that space of love. And that is why with Peapod Life as part of the Atlas Project, we, we work with the science of ecosystems. We work with the metaphysical science of creating spaces of love. Because of course, the implication is that and this relates back to that nature walk, right? To spend time in nature where nature is expressing itself and nature is creating a space of love. Well, if it works for boulders and trees and flowers and plants and water, what about our nature? Can a space of love help us achieve our highest expression? And that's a, there's a metaphysical science to that. And the answer is yes. But we have to be present and aware. We have to participate in that process. It's not, there is a mechanical aspect to it, but we're not interested in the mechanical aspect to it, uh, of it. We're interested in the conscious experience of it. Next on our list of additional practices, we have rites of rejuvenation. And uh, we'll get into more detail. We've talked about them before, but uh, we'll get uh, we'll review them quickly. Then we have Reiki, Tai Chi, Qigong, and other energy work, which are very popular, of course, in many circles. You'll often hear people talking about how they are Reiki masters or Tai Chi or whatever. Then there's something that we have personal experience with called Network Spinal Analysis, or NSA. That is the... Uh, energetic chiropractic methodology that we experience personal benefit from. And uh, it is very important that we take care of our spine. And if we do have issues with our spinal column, we have back pain or slouching or crooked or any number of issues, Many, 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 many problems can develop with the spinal column. Uh, network spinal analysis works on healing the spinal column in the vital body. And if you can align, realign spinal column in the vital body, the, the, the spine must, must realign in the physical body. Right? It has, it has no choice. Because the spine can, the physical spine cannot be out of alignment with its own foundation. And we are all energy, including the spinal column. And there's nothing more energetic in our body than 
the spinal column. It is the center conduit for all the energy moving about and through our our body. So it's like a, it's like the 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 core, the trunk line of of a of a of a uh, electrical grid. But whereas you know, whereas modern scientists think of there, there's a cable, and if you move the cable, the electricity follows the cable. In us, it's the reverse. If the electricity is moving a certain way, then the spine is going to follow it. So if you can bring the, the, the energy back into alignment, then the spine has to follow it. And you do this without cracking backs, right? Without physically trying to manipulate. Because again, you're, you're, it's, 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 it's got that, that type of chiropractic, chiropractic, while we're sure it helps some people, for those of us on the path of awakening and self-realization, for Gnostics, for those who are practicing the core practices on the left-hand side, the channel, the channels that we work with, and because they're so vital to us in working with energy within ourselves, especially the, the Kundalini and the raising of the Kundalini and working with the chakras, et cetera, et cetera, it's uh, that when we when we refuse to go see a chiropractor, and then we discovered network spinal analysis, and we were we were saved. In essence, we spent months there. It's not a quick fix, but it is. We can speak of the uh, the, the benefits of of the practice and the results. And without feeling as though we were manhandled or physically forced back into something, it was a, it was a, it was an organic process. Okay, next we have yoga. Again, very, very common. Very, uh, you know, a lot of people do it, but of course, a lot of what people practice. Not only is it superfluous to the path. But in some cases, it can be detrimental. It can have a uh, uh, the opposite effect than that what they believe it has, and we'll talk about that in some more detail. And then we have things like crystals, tarot card divination. That's you know telling the future using the tarot cards. And then there's others. I'm sure there are. You can think of other practices, and there's many others. And we'll have an opportunity for you to participate and, and list um, what what you feel, what some of those are. But let's um, let's just jump into the core practices themselves. And the first one is self-observation. Observation of our three brains and five centers. The mental, the emotional, the motor, the instinctive, and the sexual centers. We've covered this many, many times because it is such an important practice. It's a core practice. We must remain mindful and observant of our human machine. To be present, to be in our body, to feel ourselves in our body, to feel this body 
for what it is, a vessel. And to observe what is going on. And not just the physical body, right? There's what's happening in the motor center, the instinctive center, the sexual center, of course. But what is happening emotionally and what is happening mentally? Observing the mind, just watching it. Observing the emotions, the heart, the heart center. This is absolutely necessary because we cannot know who or what is influencing us in any given moment if we do not observe ourselves. If we don't observe ourselves, then we're just on autopilot. And things are happening mechanically and we're not even paying attention to them. Where our mind is wandering off of, you know, we're, we're not even present in our body. We're not even in the room that we're in. We're thinking about the future. We're thinking about the past. Our mind is on what we, you know, what, what we ate this morning or, you know, the, the chores that we have to do on the weekend. But while that's taking place, all sorts of things are happening and we're missing it. We're not there. It's happening without our knowledge. And if things happen, if things are happening inside of us without our knowledge, things are happening that we are not experiencing then there is a disconnect. We cannot extract experiential knowledge from that which we are not experiencing. So this is the foundation of every other practice. Every other practice begins here. If you do not or cannot practice mindfulness, self-observation, then Everything else on the list just falls apart. It's pointless. Related to self-observation is self-remembering. So we say self-observation. Okay. Who is the self and who is the observer? And knowing that, and remembering that. And more importantly, remembering that everything happens for a reason. And that the, the person in front of you that's insulting you, calling you names, being difficult, gaslighting you, it's being toxic, or just being themselves and just happen to be triggering your frustration, causing you to lose patience with them. All of that is being orchestrated by your Divine Mother. So, if you do not remember yourself, if you do not remember your Divine Mother in that moment, the tendency 
will be to react to that individual or to outside circumstances with anger, with fear, with pride, with envy, with greed, with lust, with laziness. In other words, the tendency will be to react instinctively, automatically, mechanically, egoically. But when you remember your Divine Mother, you're observing yourself, you're remembering yourself, you're remembering you're the observer, and you're observing as these mechanical reactions and tendencies arise in you, you say, aha, this person or this experience is, is my Divine Mother arranged for them to be here now in this moment. Why? To trigger these reactions, these automatic mechanical reactions in me, which now I can observe, whereas up, whereas before they were hiding in the shadows, they were they were lurking in the dungeon somewhere, just waiting for their chance to come out and play. Well, now Divine Mother has arranged it, and now they're out and they want to play and they they want to get into the game. Am I going to let them? Am I going to indulge them? So. Self-remembering is identifying as the observer, your innermost being, but also remembering your Divine Mother and remembering the being of your being, the being of beings. Because remembering your being of beings, we remember that everyone you meet has an innermost being and a Divine Mother, an individuated essence of the Logos. This is the way that we become one with others. We don't become one with others just through empathy. Because empathy is a tricky, slippery slope. Many people believe that they're spiritual or that they're awake or that they're enlightened just because they're empaths. An empath, all an empath is, is someone who can feel other people's pain. And lots of times that's just happening in the morphogenetic in the morphogenetic field. Or you see blood, or you see this, you see that, and you feel it because of you know you're feeling their pain. But that doesn't mean you're connected to them. But many empaths believe that that's what that means, that I am one with them because I can feel their pain. Far too many people try to connect to one thing and all things at these lower levels, i.e. energetically through the vital body. On that, on that, that's the fourth dimensional reality. That's actually beneath thoughts and emotions. So in the morphogenetic field, where, for example, mob mentality kicks in or groupthink, where you have people in a group and they all start thinking the same way or you have a mob that all start losing their mind and 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 rioting all of that is within the four bodies of sin and there is a limit to how far you can take that but because you can take it a fairly long far way too many people get caught up in that 
and they end up in nature idolatry and they get caught up in all of those additional practices we were talking about about reiki and energy work and etc cetera, etc cetera. they think that that is the path to oneness with all things but it's a trap oneness with all beings with all monads with all individuated essences of the logos can only legitimately become a reality through achieving union yug relegare with our own innermost intimate christ the logos within we must awaken and be our monad and more importantly recognize remember the being of our being the being of beings remember that we are just a cell in the body of the universe and that body has a being and if we can self-realize then we have to die and be born again as a living incarnation of that being the being of beings then we are literally metaphysically one with all beings why because we are one with the being of beings we are one with the logos we are a living incarnate incarnation of the logos we are a self-realized master a christified master self-realized master is one with that perfect multiple unity and is therefore one with every cell in the universe every monad in the universe this is what it means to be one with all beings there is no other way to be one with all beings other than this way and that's just a fact it's a hard fact it is a truth that far too many people refuse to believe or accept refuse to accept refuse to acknowledge because it's too damn hard because it's much easier for them and it's much more pleasurable for them and it feeds their mystic pride to believe that by doing reiki or performing ecstatic dance in a group or dancing to the beat of a drum in a group we are all one that way just yeah sure that's not to say that there aren't kinds of dances and modes of dances that don't help us but we mustn't be foolish we mustn't be naive self-remembering is accepting of the facts accepting of reality that we down here are just a vessel and the first step is to embody and awaken 
as the dweller of the vessel, our being. The next step is to self-realize that the dweller is actually an individuated essence of the being of beings. And then if our innermost being can achieve that level of self-realization, then we can be one with all beings. But that is the step-by-step process. That is what's being shown here in this in this image. That is what it means to ascend. That is what means to be an ascended master. People talk about 5D ascension. Don't even get us started on that. All right. Next, we have pranayama. Pranayama, breath control, the circulation of the sexual force. Uh, the pranayama that we prefer to use is called hamsa. The graphic here is uh, showing that where, let's see, yeah, we have the description here. So you inhale mentally and do it, you inhale, you inhale mentally, you inhale and then mentally perform the mantra ham. And as you inhale, you visualize the energy moving up from the coccyx, up the spinal column to the top of the head, to the crown chakra where you visualize a tongue of flame or a halo about your head or the Hebrew letter shin, which is in the graphic. And while you are visualizing and holding your breath in the crown chakra, you can audibly, aloud, uh, vocalize which is the mantra of the root chakra. But remember, you've just, you've just moved energy from the root to the, to the crown. So by focusing on the crown and focusing on the fire atop the crown chakra and pronouncing that mantra, you are assisting the continued flow of energy from the muladhara chakra to the crown chakra and as you perform that mantra and visualize the, the the light the fire you can move it over to your into your third eye And then from there, you exhale and exhale the energy into your heart. That's what's uh, being shown here, number three. It's a three-step process. And then repeat. That's hamsa. By the way, on the inhalation, you can visualize idan pingala, if that helps to get to get more energy up. A, a second version of pranayama, holding the alternating nostrils. It's very simple. 
hold hold it's one pranayama inhale hold exhale inhale hold exhale alternating nostrils There is a version of this known as Christic Egyptian pranayama, which combines this type of pranayama with mantralization. And you have to perform it in a certain order, and it is different for women than for men, because in men and women, the nadis are reversed. They're opposite one another. Um, so when you perform Christic Egyptian pranayama, and you can find instruction on how to do that on Gnostic um, glorian.org, we should say. When you perform the, the, this pranayama, you have to do it in the correct order with the correct mantras. And it's different for men and women. So if you want to study that particular uh, type of pranayama pays special attention and to the section that relates to your uh, biological gender. And yes, it's biological gender. An important thing to remember when you're performing pranayama is breathe into your stomach using the diaphragm. In other words, yogic breathing. It is, it's, it's just beneficial. It's better to do it that way than it is to breathe into your chest. Because if you notice when you breathe into your chest, you, you, you feel all the muscles and everything tensing up. You feel all the tension. And yet when you breathe into your, into your stomach, into your solar plexus, you can do it completely relaxed. You can take, you can take in more air and you can do it in a very relaxed way without all this tension and strain. Another important thing to remember is the prana or chi will flow, but do not force the breath and do not overdo it. So in other words, don't overload your nadis with energy. The, the, the point of pranayama, and we were guilty of this for, for many years, performing pranayama in a way where every breath was like a game, trying to see how much energy we can draw up in every breath and how, how, how much prana we could feel on the out-breath. So we went into the, into the heart, and then we could feel all the tingling and the tips of our toes and the tips of our fingernails, our fingertips, and we, we could, sometimes we would start sweating from all the heat we were generating. And we were like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this pranayama. I'm moving so much energy. And it's just silly. Um, Swami Sivananda advises against it. And now we recognize how foolish we were trying to perform pranayama in that way. That, that thinking that the more the better, and the more intense the better. 
if you want to be intense while you're doing pranayama, then be intense in meditation. Relax. Be intense in your relaxation. Be intense with your concentration and your visualization. You can combine pranayama with meditation and you can begin just by pranayama and enter into meditation while you are performing pranayama and pranayama in meditation will take you more quickly to a state of shunyata or calm abiding And then you can quietly, gently ease your way out of the pranayama where you stop vocalizing altogether. It's all just mental. And it's your choice. You can stick with visualization or you can move to using your will to move the prana. And as you practice and as you get better at this, you will be able to do this. You will be able to move chi. You will be able to move prana through your body and circulate it just by the force of your will. But you don't want to force it. You don't want to overdo it. You'll, this, is, this, is, this cannot be explained. It cannot be described. This is only something that you can know by experiencing it for yourself. And you will get a feel as you do this, as you practice and experiment, you know, feel the difference, feel what it's like to, you know, go a little bit, uh, become a little bit over exuberant with your hamsa meditation, for instance. It's very difficult to overdo the nostril thing. I mean, unless you hold your breath for way too long. And by the way, the most simple pranayama you can do, let's say you're having a busy day and you find yourself on a bus or on a train, well, you're not going to start doing this, right, on the bus or the, or the train, and you're not going to start doing hamsa uh, uh, pranayama. But what you can do is take five minutes, ten minutes, or depending on, you know, the, the distance to your next stop, and just take in a breath and hold it. Now, don't hold it to the point where you start turning blue, but just hold it and then breathe out. And you can breathe out through the mouth. So breathe in through the nose, hold it, and breathe out through the mouth. That is the simplest pranayama that you can do. And you will be moving some chi, some prana as you do that. And if you add visualization while you're doing that, or if you're doing hamsa mentally while you do that you can do this on a train you can do it on a on a on a bus nobody needs to know you can do it while you're waiting in, in an airport for a flight nobody needs to know you're doing this you can do it in a waiting room in a doctor's office so there's really no excuse for not doing pranayama two minutes three minutes here or there several times a day if you do three minutes, 10 times a day, you've done 30 minutes of pranayama. So if you say, I don't have 30 minutes to do pranayama, do you have three minutes? If you have 10 hours in a day, 
and you can take three minutes out of each one of those hours, you can do 30 minutes of pranayama. All right. Then we get to meditation. The first methodology that we uh, encourage is simply the combination of relaxation, concentration, visualization, and prayer. Relaxation is absolutely crucial. And if you can't relax, you will not meditate. Likewise, concentration is key. If you're not concentrated on what you're doing, then you will get nowhere. Visualization and prayer, these are not, strictly speaking, necessary. There are forms of meditation that don't involve visualization and prayer. But if you include visualization and prayer, you will experience meditation in ways that you've never experienced before. And when we say visualization, what we mean is visualizing a deity, your higher self, or a representation of your higher self, a representation of your innermost and or the being of beings, right? So you can visualize the Christ, Krishna, Quetzalcoatl, a flaming serpent, uh, Odin, Wodan, Athena. I mean, pick from the pantheon of deities and forms of deities that you are aware of. Choose whichever one speaks to your heart, even if it's just an incredibly bright, vibrant, resplendent light in the middle of the dark, a faraway star that is, that is illuminating the entire universe. That's what you want to visualize. Visualize. And then pray to it from your heart. Second version of... Oh, but while you're doing it, relax. Keep relaxing. Keep observing yourself because you will tense up. If you try to do this methodology of meditation, you will find yourself uh, tensing up. So you have to constantly like keep relaxing, keep relaxing. The second meditation that we like to practice and recommend is known as psychological judo. Now, psychological judo is exactly what it sounds like. We simply get into a comfortable position in a chair, lying down. You don't have to worry so much about the lotus position. Frankly, we can't meditate worth, worth beans in the lotus position. We just simply, our legs are too long. And have, we, have not, we, have, we have not spent a lifetime sitting on the floor. So we have spent a lifetime sitting in chairs. And so we're not, we don't bend that way. So 
uh, for us to be able to 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 do that is not comfortable. And you must be comfortable. This is the one time where comfort is your friend. If you cannot put your body into a comfortable position, you will not be able to meditate. So psychological judo, you observe the mind. And the mind, you just watch things arising in the mind and the heart. So you uh, observe your, your three bodies. It's like a practice of self-observation. And as things are coming up, you thoughts arise. You acknowledge them. Say, ha, okay. Then you let them go. An emotion might arise. You acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Let it go. Sensations might arise. You watch them. Let them go. An itch somewhere in your body will appear. And you know it will. If you've ever meditated, you know without fail. It's Murphy's Law of Meditation. You're going to get an itch somewhere. Or a spasm. Or a, or a who knows what. Somewhere in your body, something is going to start, you know, you know, pulling you out of the meditation and starting, it's going to want you to get you to scratch it or shift your position or do whatever. The key is to observe it. Sit with it. If you have an itch, go deeper into the itch. Don't try to avoid the itch. Don't try to avoid anything that comes up. Use the power and strength of your adversary against them. That's what judo is. If you want to understand what judo is, you got to go on YouTube and you got to watch some videos about judo. Judo is a form of martial arts where the defender leverages the force of their adversary as their adversary attacks them. And they leverage that force and they turn it around against their opponent. To turn, so if their opponent lunges at them with a punch, the judo practitioner grabs their arm, steps sideways, grabs their arm, and uses the forward momentum of that punch to cause that opponent to, to tumble forward. It's difficult to describe. It's easier to understand and grasp when you see it being done by a master. And um, and then you you'll understand better what psychological judo is. Now, the beauty about psychological judo is that as you do this and get good at it and relax and be patient, really patient and relaxed and focused and concentrate and don't if you find your if you get if you get caught up in the thought and all of a sudden you wake up and you realize. Oh shit. I I can't remember the last 15 minutes. Just relax. Don't beat yourself up over it. It happens. Okay? It just means your adversary tangled you up. Right? Grappled you like a ninja. If you know about ninjutsu martial arts, you know that ninjas are all about grappling. And judo is all about avoiding getting grappled and taking the the attacks of the ninjas and using it against them. So, but if the ninja successfully grapples you and you get caught up in the thought or you get caught up in the emotion or you get caught up in the sensation, but you, and then you wake up a few minutes later and you go, oh, wow, I got caught up in that. Just relax. 
try to remember what was the first thought or first emotion or first sensation that caused you to get derailed from your meditation then return back to that place where you were and continue the meditation it's like in the movie scent of a woman right when um al pacino is uh dancing with the young lady the tango and he says don't worry if you get tangled up you just tango on it's the same thing you don't have you cannot afford to berate yourself or kick yourself and certainly don't stop meditating just because you got derailed the adversary your egos the mind the heart the body are going to try to derail your meditation that's why psychological judo is effective and if you do this successfully after a while your adversary runs out of ninjas and all of a sudden the mind the heart the body it runs out of steam the egos run out of steam they get tired they get bored they get frustrated they're like ah to hell with it and all of a sudden shh, everything just calms right down. and sometimes sometimes you can be sitting there and it's just like it's just like really it's just like a, uh one of those b-movie martial arts films you're just all these attackers all these ninjas are coming at you and you're the hero and you're fighting them off and fighting them off and you're doing this judo and they're all flying left right and center and all of a sudden boom they're gone they stop coming sometimes it's like that and all of a sudden you go from this act this this high level of activity shoom, and just and then you just dive into this place and then you're in this place of meditation then your meditation really begins a third methodology that you can use is to dive deeper into the bodies now we've done this meditation before together and we have a video on uh, youtube and it's sort of just what it sounds like you start off by being present in your physical body and going as deep as you can into your physical body and then after satisfying yourself and really being present and really feeling as though you have reached the basement of your physical body you be present and feel that and say i am not this physical body and then you dive deeper and you and you leave the physical body behind you just you just you you it's like you feel like you're shedding it but you're not shedding it you're just going you're going through the bottom of the basement and now you dive into your vital body the body of chi the body of prana and you begin to put your focus your concentration your attention on your vital body and you begin to feel that 
feel the energy, feel the tingling, feel the 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 activity of your vital body, and be present in your vital body, and really feel it, and be there, and keep going deeper into that until you have the same experience as you did with the physical body. Only now you feel you've reached the basement of your vital body. You've reached the limits of your vital body. And then again, say to yourself, I am not this body. And then you dive past that basement, through the floor of that basement, into your next body, the astral body. And then you perform this same process, physical body, vital body, astral body, mental body, causal body, buddhic body, and then atmic body. And when you reach the end of the atmic body, you say, I am he, I am he, I am, I am the being. This is my body. And from there, as the being in your atmic body, you can feel yourself as the being. You can turn and this process, you can now recognize that you are an individuated essence of the logos. So now, from here, from that point of meditation, you can shift from going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But now you've reached a point where now you can shift to expansion. And expand into the being of beings that you are an essence of. This is something that you have to experience to, to really appreciate. And, but again, it's a, just another form of meditation. Again, don't worry about sitting in the lotus position. Perfectly uh, acceptable asanas include sitting in a comfortable chair, lying down. The important thing is to keep your spine straight. That's the important thing. Be relaxed and comfortable. Now, possibly the most important form of meditation is retrospection. This is where we visualize our day and you pick a specific event from that day. So begin the day, begin retrospecting on your day at the present moment moving backwards or begin from the time that you woke up or from your dreams, what you were dreaming before you woke up and move forward. Either way, if you can, you want to include your dream time if you can remember your dreams. So, and you scan moving forward or scan moving backward and, and uh, all the events of, your, of the day. And then you find a specific event that was dramatic, that had importance, meaning. And you focus on the egos that were involved in that particular event. 
you focus and you pay attention to the suffering that they caused, the suffering they caused you, and through your actions, the suffering they brought to others. The point of retrospection med meditation is not to indulge the egos again in the mind. It's not to replay all the suffering and relive all the suffering. No, you want to play this as a movie. You want to play it. You, you are a third party objective observer now. So you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, this is not an acting exercise, right? You are a director, you know, re, uh, watching the dailies from the previous day's shoot. You're not an actor, right? Rehearsing and getting into character and playing and reliving all the, the, the pain and suffering, right? That's, that's not, because you can't, first of all, you can't be relaxed like that. And secondly, you're going to be feeding your egos again. You're going to be allowing them to take control and allowing them to, uh, to uh, uh, play you again. So, all right. So you don't indulge them. You just observe and wait patiently to comprehend those egos. You're aware of the suffering they cause. You can see the suffering playing out. You can see the circumstance. And you replay this one event, the circumstance, over and over and over again from all its different facets, paying attention to those egos. And you wait patiently as you practice this retrospection for you to have a moment of clarity, a eureka moment where all of a sudden in a flash of, of, of comprehension, you just, you just now know, you get it now. You just, you just know now what was going on. Like so clear as day, it just comes to you. Bam. That's what a Zen Buddhist uh, might call uh, a flash of lightning in the dark of night. And it is technically a form of shamadi. All right. Now we get to transformation of impressions. You notice how quickly, or how quickly, how slowly we're going through these because these core practices are so important. Um, this was a three hour, this was three hours uh, last Wednesday. And we're already an hour and 15 minutes in, but we will, we will touch on the other topic. Um, okay, transformation of impressions. All right, we've mentioned this, we have to digest our food. We have to know that impressions are food. Well, we take them in the mind. We take through all of our senses. We have to digest impressions consciously to transform them from automatic, unconscious, to conscious experience. It's, it's bears repeating. We have to digest impressions consciously to transform them from automatic, unconscious, to conscious experience. Because if they remain unconscious, then it's our egos who are digesting them. 
and the experience becomes subconscious. The, the experience goes into our subconscious. We're feeding our egos with those impressions. It's like, what's a, what's a good analogy? Imagine having a tapeworm and everything you eat just gets eaten up by the tapeworm. Your digestive system is not able to digest anymore. Everything you do is you're just, you're just feeding this tapeworm that just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. Observe negative egoic reactions, acknowledge them, then transform them into positive conscious responses. This is where the psychological judo meditation becomes a valuable exercise, a valuable practice of allowing things to arise, recognizing them, and letting them go. If you combine psychological judo with relaxation, concentration, visualization, and prayer, is what you can do is take a um, something that arises, recognize it, and let it go. But as you're letting it go, replace it with something beautiful, something positive, a prayer. Just a phrase and visualize something, you know, to, to, so transform it. The easiest way to transform is remembering your divine mother and expressing gratitude. That's why, I mean, you know, all credit, give credit where credit is due. That's why we give our props to the New Age to at least, at least, they got that one right. Living in a, with it, what they call an attitude of gratitude. And if you combine your attitude of gratitude with remembering your Divine Mother, and you're remembering she is the one that you're grateful to, then it's very easy when, when impressions come which are negative and you're tempted to, to respond in a negative way, it is so much easier to... Easier is not the right word. It's so much... It's so much less likely that you're going to get caught up in the negativity and you, you, that you're going to react in kind. Instead, you'll end up responding. Responding with gratitude. Responding with love. Responding with... Responding in the way that your innermost being wishes you to respond. So transformation of impressions is part and parcel with self-observation and self-remembering. There's an entire course 
on the transformation of impressions. And there is the link. Uh, but we should also, if we can, can we? Yeah, okay. There it is right there. So the link is now in the chat. This is one of those uh, this is one of those courses that it's really worthwhile. It's really worthwhile taking the time to go through it. All right, where were we? Oh, we're over here. Okay. Next, we have mantras, prayers, and runes. Uh, the most basic of these and the most powerful and important from a Gnostic's point of view are E-A-O and A-O-U-M. And A-O-M is A-U-M. It's O-M. So O-M, you know, is the mantra of the heart. But A is the mantra of the lungs of the thymus gland. It's behind the heart. It's the same chakra. So it's Aum. And U is the mantra of the solar plexus. So we mustn't think of the heart chakra as just being the heart. The heart chakra is the largest chakra in the body. The heart encompasses four, four chakras. M is the chakra of the sexual organs. And then if you want to expand that out further, well then, you encapsulate the third eye, the crown chakra, the throat chakra, which is the esoteric ear, and the muladhara chakra, the root chakra, which is S, which we discussed earlier during pranayama. And now you have which is James. Yalms. 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 I can't do that properly pronounced, but that's James in uh, Hebrew. If I is a Y. James, the brother of Jesus. And sort of self-explanatory, really. Then we have the Christic mantras, Om Mani Padme Om and Om Masi Padme Hom. You may not be familiar with the second one, where the N is replaced with an S. The second one is the more powerful. It's a secret one. It's only revealed to those who are worthy to receive it and use it. The next one is Klim Krishnaya Govindaya Gopijana Vayabaya Swaha. This is the mantra of mind protection. It's also the mantra we say when we perform the macrocosmic star. In terms of prayers, we have at our disposal the Pater Noster or Our Father. If you can say it in Latin, great. You don't have to. You can say it in English or whatever language you prefer. Then we have the Hail Mary, 
Conjurations of the Four and Seven, Invocation of Solomon, and uh, these are covered in the Glorian course, the Spiritual Warfare course. And uh, hopefully, well, is it, uh... okay, so the link that we have here is uh, the Invocation of Solomon. But all these prayers can be found uh, on glorian.org. You just have to do a search for them by name. And uh, they all have like extensive courses, like a complete like 90 minute or two hour lecture on just each prayer. So you can spend a great deal of time studying the the meaning and importance of these prayers. And then, if, then, of course, there's just praying from your heart, just speaking to your innermost being and to the being of beings. When you combine prayer and meditation, one of the things that we like to point out is that the first line of the Our Father is, Our Father who art, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's our, it says our father. Not my father. It says our father. Who is the our? If you're alone in your room at night praying the our father, why are you saying our father? If you go into meditation... You visualize, and you see a visualization of your innermost being, and you visualize yourself drawing nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer to your innermost until you mesh, you join, you coagulate, and become one. And feel yourself one with your innermost being. If you've spent, you know, an hour diving into your bodies and now you're in your atmic body and you're literally in the body of your being, your atman, and you're one with your atman after spending an hour doing that meditation, then from that place, visualize the Christ. Quetzalcoatl, Krishna, it doesn't matter. However you visualize the logos, the glowing star at the center of the universe, it doesn't matter. The fire of the fire, the light of lights. Then, together, combined, as one, you and your innermost Atman, as one, pray, to the Logos. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth. This earth, this physical body, that's our earth. As it is in heaven. If you combine, so the meaning of these prayers, these prayers are metaphysical scientific programs. They're recipes, they're, I'm not sure, they're protocols. And that's why they're included here as practices. They're powerful. And they can assist us in awakening and indeed moving us along the path of self-realization as we just described through a combination of meditation and prayer to achieving union with our innermost being and then together as one praying to the logos, to the absolute, our Father who art in heaven. Now you, you will experience what it means to be your being. And you can receive information directly from the Absolute. Ah, this is the other uh, course that we wanted to bring up. And there, okay, so here's the page on Glorienne that's called um, Prayer and Mantra. And uh, there's the link in the chat. And here it is on screen. And there are books and courses and, and there's a FAQ and there's, there's lots of resources on prayer and mantra there on, um, for you to uh, peruse at your own convenience. Finally, we get to runes, and runes are a practice whereby we combine a movement and a mantra or series of mantra or series of movements and, and series of mantras. There are a number of different ones, and we'd like to be able to... Um, they have videos on YouTube as well showing you the movements, but the, the, the individual lectures here uh, explain everything about each one of these runes. This is a way to incorporate the physical body into your practice, which is far more powerful and meaningful than yoga. It's just straight up. And it is important to include our physical vessel somehow in our, in our practices. So every day we want to be able to activate the mental center, the emotional center, and the motor physical, uh, sorry, the, uh, the motor instinctive sexual center uh, consciously. And the runes will help uh, do that, the physical body. And, and in a conscious, higher way. 
Okay, let's let's move on here. Um, okay. Next, we have Astro Project, uh, Astro Project, Astral Projection, and Dream Yoga. The first key practice to this is known as the key of SOL or subject, object, and location. If you make this part of your, well, first, first of all, why is astral projection dream yoga important? Well, because awakening in the astral plane is part of the process of awakening the consciousness. Awakening in the fifth dimension is a stepping stone to awakening in the sixth. And while in the astral plane, we can have many experiences, so-called lucid dreaming, right? Being awake. We can go and ask to see our innermost being. We can ask to see our divine mother. We can visit temples of the Great White Lodge. Um, we can investigate matters. We can go visit the Akashic Records. We can investigate matters consciously, which we could never do physically. Not least because none of the temples of the great white lodge exist in the physical plane they're in the they're in the metaphysical plane you're in the astral plane so makes sense the key of subject object location is part of your mindfulness practice where you during the day you will have an experience and something will grab your attention just whatever whatever it is grabs your attention, you pay attention to it, and in that moment, you take stock, you recognize the, the, the subject, the object, and the location. So what are you observing? The object, and you, the subject that, you're, that, that, is, that is observing, or sorry, we always get this we always get this backwards the subject of your observation the object of your observation the objective observer yourself your higher self and then your location so you we'll have to double check that because right now we're feeling a little bit um our, our minds are a little bit hazy and now we think we might have gotten that anyway the point is, you have to observe whatever it is you're observing. You pay close attention to what you're observing. You remember what's being observed. You remember the observer. And then you ask yourself, where am I? Am I in the astral plane? And then you prove to yourself where you are by taking a little jump with the intention to fly. If you are in the astral plane, you will float. If you practice the key of SOL, right, key of soul, the key of light, the key of the sun, and when, you're, when your consciousness gets pricked and your attention is 
drawn to something. You know you're, you need to pay attention to that for some reason. So take that opportunity to pay attention to that. What, what are you observing? Why are you, why are you told to observe it? Who is observing it? Who is the observer? And where am I? Am I in the astral plane? And if you can't jump because you're in a public place and you don't want to seem silly, you can't jump anywhere, right? You can do other things like try to stretch your finger out. Or uh, if you're sitting on a bus, you can try to push your finger through the seat back in front of you. There are different things that you can do to test which reality you are in. There is no gravity in the astral plane. So if you try to jump and the, you can you can stretch your finger, you can you can do things in the astral plane that you cannot do in the physical universe. Therefore, if you practice this while you are awake during the day, you will remember to do it while you are dreaming at night. So when you're you'll be in a dream and something happens and you go, "Hey, that's interesting. What am I looking at? Who's looking and where am I? Am I in the astral plane?" And then you'll do a little jump in your dream and all of a sudden you'll start to float. But you got to do the jump with the desire to float, you, with the, the with the intention to float, with the with the intention to fly. You, you there has to be a will there behind that jump. And then if you're dreaming, and you ask yourself, am I in the astral plane? And you jump and you're floating, boom, you're, you're going to wake up. Not physically you're going to wake up. You're going to wake up in your dream. You're going to begin your astral projection. You're going to be aware that you're dreaming. You're going to begin lucid dreaming. And from there, you can travel. You can ask to see your divine mother. You can ask to see your innermost being. You can, you can travel to the temple of the White Lodge, uh, to one of the temples of the White Lodge. You can travel to the Akashic Records. You can go visit the lost library of Atlantis in the mountains of Tibet. The universe is your oyster at that point. But try not to travel too far because you're limited by how far you can go with the amount of energy that you have. We know we've, we, we, uh, we traveled once to the planet of the Greys and uh, we, we weren't able to stay there very long because it's a long way to go on a trip you know it's a lot it's a very 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 far way to go even on the astral plane so it took a lot and and you know it's a, it's a long way for the silver cord to stretch in addition to that so in any case key of sol this is your first best way to learn astral projection is to practice asking where you are so that when you dream you'll you'll remember to ask where you are and then boom you'll awaken the second one that we suggest is meditating on the still soft voice or the anahata sound which is the the uh what people call tinnitus or the ringing in the ears you can meditate on that and you have to be patient just be patient and don't expect anything and don't anticipate it just Meditate on that sound, relax, concentrate on it, focus on it, and keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into that sound. Eventually, what will emerge from that sound is the sound of a chirping cricket. That's why we have Jiminy Cricket here, by the way. Um, <laughs> we have Jiminy Cricket here for that reason. 
in the summertime, if you sleep with the window open and it's hot outside and you have crickets outside your window, you can meditate on those crickets. And once you're meditating on the sound of the cr cricket, whether it came from the Anahata sound or you're meditating on crickets outside, turn on your right-hand side, put your right hand under your pillow and put your left hand on your left thigh. That's called the lion's pose. Oh, with your legs stacked on top of each other. So you're lying on your right-hand side. Your legs are one on top of each other and your left hand is on your left thigh. Your right hand is under your pillow, under your, under your head. This is called the lion's pose. And if you fall asleep meditating to the sound of a cricket while lying in the lion's pose, there's a very good chance that you will, as, you, as you're falling asleep, you will project into the astral plane. There are, uh, okay, this is a, this is a uh, description of that um, practice. You can also uh, keep a dream journal. And there are other methodologies to projecting to the astral plane. There is a, there's a, uh, there is a course on glorian.org about astral projection and dream yoga, which uh, we encourage you to, to go and look at for more details. Next, we have sexual alchemy. This we obviously uh, practice when we have our, we have met our life partner. Um, you know, we can enhance the practice of sexual alchemy with perfume, with incense, roses, flowers, uh, turn the space into a sacred space, space of love. While we are practicing, we mantralize. You know, there's mantras. E the mantra e And we can't pronounce this one properly because we can't roll our R's. But that first rolled R, that's as, that's as we can't, we can't along, we can't do an elongated rolled R. But if you can roll your R's, then it's cream, but you want to roll, you want to elongate that R. We can also visualize the Kundalini rising and then pray to our Divine Mother, expressing reverence, humility, and gratitude. Thank you for your great divine, uh, for your grace. Thank you for this grace, for letting us work with your divine fires. Rise, Mystic Mother. Uh, through the uh, Shushumna canal of our spinal column, illuminating all of our chakras, eliminating all of our previously comprehended egos, um, giving rise, crystallizing our golden bodies of our innermost intimate Christ. The more you know about sexual alchemy the, and the more you know about the gifts that our Divine Mother Kundalini gives us as we perform sexual alchemy, the more you have to thank her for and pray to her about and beseech her for, beg her as you are performing that. And when we do 
uh, sexual alchemy or when we have with our uh, former partner, we would take turns uh, praying. So someone would lead the prayer and someone would follow. And you do that like one statement at a time. So, you know, pray. So, um, holy, blessed, divine mother, we thank you for this grace. You would, that's how far you would go. And then your partner would repeat what you just said. And then you would continue the prayer. And you would just do that in little short segments. And then your, your partner would do. Otherwise, you can pray together the Hail Mary, for example. If you know both of you have prayers that you both have know off by heart, you can pray them together with one another. Then, of course, there's relaxing and breathing. In other words, pranayama. And the goal of sexual alchemy is to avoid the orgasm by transmuting the sexual force. You want to build up the energy and then transmute the energy. But you want to be careful as you, you do this because you don't want to transmute so much that you, know, you lose your arousal. That defeats the purpose. You also, you have to recognize that accidents do happen. And if they do, that's uh, not a reason to freak out because we've, wrote, we've written about this, that um, it's very easy as a Gnostic to become afraid and to start fearing the orgasm. We don't want to fear anything. That's not a, that's not a useful strategy and that's not a, an appropriate thing to do, to be afraid of having an accident. Accidents can be forgiven. This is difficult. Remember, all the ascended masters had to perform uh, sexual alchemy at some point, and it's not easy. When we first begin with our partner, it takes a a great deal of uh, time and effort to uh, until we find you know until we're in tune with one another, and uh, until we are in tune with one another, uh, things can get a little dicey there. Um, it's it's a learning process. It's like anything else. Practice makes perfect. And at the beginning, nobody, nobody can expect to, to, you know, to jump on a horse and all of a sudden, you know, go ride the steeplechase. It doesn't work that way. Neither does it work that way with sexual alchemy. It doesn't work that way with meditation. It doesn't work that way with anything. It takes time. It takes effort. And we will fall. We will make mistakes. Accidents happen. And it's okay. You just don't want to get into the habit of them especially when it comes to sexual alchemy. This is not a, this is not an invitation to say, "Oh, well, accidents happen." Wink wink nudge nudge. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Because the lords of karma are not stupid. You can't pull the wool over their eyes. You can't willingly knowingly go into sex knowing what the result is going to be and pretend like, "Oh, it was an accident." You're not going to get away with that. All right. Then we have incense and essential oils. This is for smudging or, you know, cleaning your home, especially where you sleep. These are some of the incenses that you can burn. Uh, this sulfur, asafoetida. It's, it's, it's a hard one to pronounce. Uh, benzoin, juniper, sage, rue, camphor. Now, sulfur, you don't want to be home while you burn that. You get a charcoal disc, you light it, 
wait until it heats up, put the sulfur on it, and leave. And don't come back for a good two or three hours. And when you come back, probably the first thing you're going to need to do is open up all the windows. Because you do not want to be breathing in sulfur. You just don't want to do it. Just don't. Right? It's uh, the, the smell alone, but besides that, you, it's just not beneficial. Uh, you, you don't want to be doing that. Um, we used asafoetida for, for some time, um, but all of these are good. And then, of course, there are the uh, you can perfume with frankincense. Frankincense also has a cleansing effect. Don't get me wrong. Um, and then... Essential oils are available to you if you can't stand the smoke of incense. Some people just can't handle the smoke. They have allergies or they have sensitive lungs or whatever the case may be. Um, so essential oils, there are many that uh, you, can, you can find and you get a, a good diffuser or you just get one of those little uh, diffusers that works by with a tea light. You put a little candle, tea light candle on the bottom and... And you can order these things online. All right. Finally, we get to esoteric study. Now, when it comes to esoteric study, you want to read the scripture consciously with your heart, not just intellectually, right? Some of the books you want to include in your studies are Samuel Anvayor, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, Helena Blavatsky, Manley P. Hall, L. Rudolf Steiner, and others. And then what we also recommend very highly is to listen to lectures at glorian.org and or read the transcripts of those lectures. You will also find many lectures that Samayan Vayor gave, the transcriptions of those lectures, that is. And Glorian organizes its lectures in the form of courses. And there are, they will give you additional reading materials, they will give you visuals. Um, Glorian.org is a very, very useful resource when it comes to esoteric study. We can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, this brings us to, at last, the additional practices, which we've already covered some of these. So, we're just going to put them on, back on the screen and say we've got uh, 10 minutes allotted here for questions and comments. If you have any questions or comments regarding these the, uh, the practices on the path, this list that we uh, compiled, then by all means, now would be the time to ask, because if not, we're going to dive into the second topic um, for today, which was our topic on Friday. Um, if no one has anything to... Okay, well, you can always, if you, have any, if you have any comments or questions, you can always feel free to jump in. 
the second topic we have for today is how to handle when you're being pulled in two directions within yourself. That's the nature of this background, by the way. Um, we live in a world which, let's face it, uh, it's a very intellectual world. We're in our heads most of the time. And we're constantly, constantly being told what the prudent thing is to do. We're constantly being told what the best practices are, what, what it takes to be successful, what we need to do, what we have to do, et cetera, et cetera. And very often we find ourselves confronted in our own mind by such uh, assertions and we feel us being pulled in that direction. And many of these assertions, hard to argue against them, right? Hard to argue that you have to make a living, that you have to put food on your on the table and have a roof over your head and you, you have to be practical and you have to we're not of the world but we're in the world and while we're in the world we have to abide by its rules and when there's certain things that that people are uh, expected to do it's and it goes on and on and on and on and on many of these so-called truisms come to us from family and friends and our upbringing and our and social pressures societal pressures pressures from work pressures from church other communities other groups we belong to but certainly we feel confident saying most of us relate to this by virtue of uh, family pressures where we all have family members that bless their heart they have the best of intentions and they really do want what's best for us and they certainly believe that and they will plant into our mind things that we need to do a certain way or things that we need to accomplish, et cetera, et cetera, in order to be happy, in order to be successful, or in order to fulfill their idea of what our success and what our happiness would look like and should be. But we all have experienced the pull of the heart and when we say the pull of the heart we're not referring to the inferior heart center we're not referring to sentimentality or desires or anything else we're referring to that deep deep knowing and inner longing to accomplish what no one else can accomplish that only what only we can do and that sense of destiny that sense of fulfillment that sense of purpose that that comes to us from the heart and very often 
that that exists in opposition to um, the better, more rational uh, sentiments coming from our from our head. And so now we find ourselves being torn in two. A heart is telling us to drop out of school, throw a backpack on our on our back and go walking the earth or go traveling to some other part of the world. Meanwhile, the amount of tuition we spent <laughs> and our parents and our family and our friends, they're all telling us we're crazy. It's there are there are an infinite number of scenarios. And there have been there have been countless examples and countless case studies of individuals who have faced this sort of uh, fork in the road, this turning point in their life, where they've allowed themselves to be ruled by their head, and then all of a sudden the heart decides to assert its dominance and says, okay, all right, the intellectual party is over. Now you have to you have to follow your passion. You have to follow your purpose. It's time for you to pursue your destiny. So how do we face this? And how do we cope with this? How do we handle when we are being torn into this way? Is there is there a proper way to, to handle it? Is there a way to make it easier on ourselves and on others, on those around us? Because after all, especially when it comes to family, no, no family, no family member ever can ever say that they, they signed up for the path of the Bodhisattva. You might be on the straight path. You might be on the direct path. You might feel that in your bones. And you, for you, it might be no problem whatsoever. But the likelihood that your family is okay with that is very, very, very slim. Very slim. And the likelihood that they are going to enjoy watching you go through living a life of suffering and sacrifice for humanity. It's going to be excruciating for them. We're, all, we're, we're speaking from our own experience. We're speaking from the experience of our family, who we can say unequivocally did not sign up for the, the journey that we're on. And suffice it to say, um, you know, no parent wants to watch their child suffer. And depending on the parent, they're terrified of that notion. And fear leads to the desire to control. 
what we experience through others, their concern for us, and their wanting what's best for us, and the way that they and society and authorities and teachers and cult and you know the way the world tries to hurt us in a certain direction, and they have all these good reasons for why that is. We have to face all of that in ourselves in a similar way. We have to be prepared for the same types of arguments and the same type of fear and the same desire to control outcomes and to be in control of our own destiny. Right? That's what the mind does. Now, the mind can collude with the inferior heart center right? The source of desires, the, sort of the source of sentimentality. That part of us which will attach itself to certain ideas and, and identify with certain beliefs and concepts like the house in the suburbs, the 2.5 kids, the two-car garage, the summers in the Hamptons, or winters down in Florida, or whatever the case may be. And our inferior heart center can develop an attachment to that kind of lifestyle. And the comfort and the security which comes from satisfying the mind and the mind's demands and the mind's beliefs and expectations and suggestions and advice on what it takes to survive and what it takes to be successful in this world. The inferior heart center can collude with that and, and cause temptation because we're worried about what other people think and we're worried about what they say behind our backs and we're worried about what they're going to say about us and we're worried about surviving and we're worried about... So all that worry, that's all fear. But how do we cope with it? How do, well, how do we deal with this conflict? Because it is a conflict and it's a real conflict. And many of us experience it or have experienced it or will experience it. Now, here's one way not to deal with it. When Many men, they will sometime between the age of 42 and 50, they will wake up one morning and look over at their spouse, look up at the ceiling, maybe get up, walk downstairs, and look around their house and look out into their neighborhood and look at the stack of bills and look at the stack of work that they brought home with them from, from their job. And all of a sudden they'll realize, I hate my life. I'm completely unsatisfied. I'm not doing what... 
I'm not, I'm not living. I'm, I'm going through the motions of a life, but it's not my life. And they have what is known as a midlife crisis. <clears throat> now, typically, or stereotypically, what happens <clears throat> when a man has a midlife crisis is he goes out and buys a sports car, maybe gets himself a mistress, maybe has an affair, uh, maybe gets together with his uh, other friends of the same age, and they go on a two-week bender in um, in Las Vegas or in one of these all-you-can-drink all resorts down south somewhere. And they just, in a desperate bid, in a desperate attempt to to uh, electroshock themselves back into a feeling of, of, of being alive. Uh, this, is, this is not how one should deal with the, the, the struggle between, between mind and heart. This is not the way. Um, the intuition or the feeling that we have that we that's pulling us between the so-called prudent normal um you know everyday things to do and 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 the path of slings and arrows of outrageous fortune well clearly the ego is going to step in and try to take advantage of that it's, it's, it's going to try to wrap a whole bunch of different ideas around that longing, that, that sense, that knowing, that intuition that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I need to be doing something else. But really, the ego is going to use the mind, <laughs> right? So when the heart is pulling us in the opposite direction, of the mind, the answer is not to fall into the tricks of the mind and the ego mind, which is going to throw us, go out and buy a sports car, go out and you know get a mistress, have an affair, do this, do that, right? Abandon your family, abandon everything, right? So, you know. So the core practices that we talked about, self-observation, self-remembering, meditation, these are all part of and prayer pray for help pray for guidance these will all help you get to the answer of what to do because the alternative right for someone who's in that case study that 40 some odd year old man who's having a midlife crisis who does have a wife and a, a home and a mortgage and children and a job and he wakes up one day and he realizes i hate my life i'm not doing what i supposed what i was born to do we are not advocating here and now to say just leave it all behind just go and follow your heart willy-nilly with no with no regard for who you hurt or how 
or the responsibilities that you leave behind. That's not what we're, that's not what we're suggesting. suggesting. There may be a way where you can begin to pursue that, that other thing, that heart calling in parallel while you continue on with your responsibilities and with your commitments that you previously made. Because after all, you made them. You made your bed. You have to sleep in it. It's not... It's not just a matter of lighting a match and burning the bed that you made. If you made your bed, you're going to be sleeping in it for a while. Maybe it's enough that you get to a point where your children are adults. Your responsibility for raising them are, is more or less satisfied. And you can maybe it's possible to start look you know looking at options of early retirement or again maybe it's an option where you use your free time and your spare time not to go drinking with the guys and not to watch football on tv but instead your spare time becomes your passion time the time for not your hobbies but your passion if it's writing then you write instead of watching TV, instead of playing video games, instead of going drinking with the guys, you write. If that's, if, if all of a sudden you wake up and realize, I have something to write, I should have been a writer, well then write. You don't need to quit your job, you don't need to divorce your wife, and you don't need to abandon your children to become a writer. And there are many, 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 many things that you might be called to do, that you can do while you still maintain some semblance of responsibility. Now, what's true for someone going through a midlife crisis is true for any of us. When we are feel, feeling this pull between heart and mind, maybe there's a way of satisfying both. Maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. And maybe we are being called to do just that. But there's only one way to really know that. And that's to relax and listen to the still soft voice of our innermost being. We have to fall back on our intuition. And we have to, we have to fall back on our conscience. It's our conscience that's going to dictate whether, how whether it's right or not for us to walk away from our family, for example. No one person can answer this question for any of us. It's something that we all have to answer for ourselves. But the answer is going to come from within. But it's all too easy and tempting to say, screw it, I'm following my heart and everybody else be damned. Well, from our own experience, there's a... Sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. 
but they're never damned, are they? In our experience, we, we, we could never altogether walk away from our family and our family responsibilities, even now. Despite the fact that we have uh, sibling and in-laws, for example, who can't begin to, you know, understand or respect the choices that we make. But that's fine. It's, it's when you experience a conflict between heart and mind, recognize the mind is not equipped to understand the mind cannot understand the mind is the adversary the mind is being influenced by egos and egos are the adversary of us and our path and our destiny the egos are going to try to do everything in their power to prevent us from following our heart, our deepest longings, our, our, our truest intuitions, the knowledge, our self-knowledge, what we know, who we are, why we're here, what we came here to do, we have to do it. The ego is going to use the mind and fear, the inferior heart center, to deflect us, to derail us, just like it does in meditation. So, how do we handle it in meditation? Well, there's psychological judo. And what do we call that in our waking life? Moment to moment, in our self-observation, we call that transformation of impressions. The easiest way to deal with difficult family in this regard is gratitude be grateful to them because in mar in our experience unless you really do have a spiteful hateful jealous uh, uh family members who who really want what's best for them only and we feel that's pretty rare we feel that's a pretty rare thing maybe we're naive but we look family is still family and and it's very rare that that blood relations are that spiteful and hateful towards one another generally speaking what you find is they they want what's best for each other and sure maybe what's best for each other is what their idea of what's best so what what they think is what's best but their intentions are in the right place. Their heart is in the right place. They're being ruled by their head, sure. But their heart is in the right place. They don't want to see you suffer. They don't want to see you unhappy. They don't want to see you miserable. They don't want to see you fail. So be grateful for that. Express your gratitude. In the same way, your own mind... Uh, you know, is going to be 
coming up with all sorts of reasons and rationales and whatever. And, and a lot of these thoughts and ideas and beliefs were implanted there from, from outside. Society, culture, norms, friends, family, etc. How many times, if you're, if you're over, your, over 30 and single, you know, how often when you go visit family members, for example, your parents, how often are you confronted with, oh, so-and-so had their second child? Or did you know that so-and-so is getting married? Yeah, they just got engaged. And like, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, clock is ticking. Like we get that all the time. Like you, you, you go visit your parents, you haven't seen them in who knows how long, or your grandparents for that matter, and, and you're hardly in the door and they're telling you about all, all these other people that you know, mutual relations, that are working on their second kid or third kid or, 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 or they just bought a new house or they just built a cottage or, they, or their kid just uh, did this in school or, you know, they're, it's like they're rubbing it in your, they're rubbing your nose in it. They're shoving it in your face. Look what a normal life is. Look what you're missing out on. When we're, when we're on the path, when we're walking the path, we deal with a lot of this kind of stuff. And you really, all you can do is smile and, and be grateful that you have people in your life who care about you. They might have a strange way of showing it, but at their level of being, at their level of consciousness, that's the only thing that they have to work with. That's the only way that they can express and show their concern for us. It's the only thing they know. Nobody can, right? If nobody can advise us and give us good, meaningful, useful advice other than that which they know from their own experience. That's all that's all they have to give. So they're trying to give you something of value. And they're sharing with you something about who they are. They're giving of themselves to you. But of course, from experience, we know that it's very hard to take it that way. Very often, we, we cannot help but sense the kind of passive-aggressive undermining subversive nature of such comments those quips you know uh, subtly reminding us about how we're still single or how we're unsuccessful or how we're still living in a crappy apartment when all of our friends have nice houses or we're still looking for work or we're still having a dead-end job when everybody else has careers like all of this like it's hard not to sense and recognize that that there is a kind of an underhanded passive aggressive aspect of family members who do this but again it's carrot and stick it's severity and mercy 
It's their way of trying to plant a seed and nudge us in the right direction from their point of view based on their experience and based on the experience of so many other people in their circle. So many other people around them in their circle of friends and acquaintances and, and extended family seem happy and seem successful. And seem, so why can't we fall in line? So recognizing that and having compassion and having mercy and, and being grateful and thanking our Divine Mother for having a family that cares so deeply about us and think about our well-being. All of that is helpful in helping us cope with this being pulled between heart and mind. And again, we encourage you to retrospect on all the different times that this has happened with you. And if you are on a spiritual path, if you're on a path of genuinely following your heart, and if you're on anything even remotely like the path of the Bodhisattva, you will encounter this a lot. Right? You will encounter living a life where you don't fit into many boxes and you don't, you're not dotting many I's and crossing many T's on many forms. You're outside of the norm, the average, let's say, and, and the people around you, the best of intentions, whatever, they're, they're encouraging you to, to take a different path than the one that you know you're here to do. But always listen, because it is possible at times to receive guidance through the mind. And it is possible to receive guidance through your family and friends. Because sometimes we, you might not have it right. Sometimes you may have made a mistake. You may have been in error, uh, error of judgment. Or you may think you're following your intuition, but maybe your mind got in the way. It's complicated and convoluted. There's always something to be gained when being confronted by those close to you. So never, dis never dismiss them outright. So don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of just cutting them all off or just dismissing them outright in a kind of ego reaction. Spend the time and become aware of what's really, what's really going on in that transaction. And, also, and be grateful for them. And be grateful for having these tests. And be grateful for having this challenge. Because your devotion... And dedication and resilience, your stalwartness, your stick with itness is being tested. Your willpower, your, your courage, and your resolve to be is being tested. So thank your Divine Mother for the test. Thank your family member for giving you something to think about. And thank you for their, their honest and earnest caring for your well-being. Let them know how much you appreciate that and how much you appreciate them. And how you would, and how you would never want them uh, to not feel fulfilled and not do what they came here to do. And that, and that because you wish that for them, you wish that for everybody, and that's your philosophy and, you have to, and that's how you live.
and that just tell them that you're you that you uh you know proceed from that sort of place at the end of the day the answers lie within follow your heart follow your heart but don't don't just dismiss your mind outright sometimes it's your mind you have to follow when it's your inferior heart center when it's desire when it's sentimentality when it's attachment when it's identification when it's uh pain and suffering and the attachment and the addiction to pain and suffering or the self-loathing or all the other aspects of the inferior heart center well then clearer minds must prevail and you must listen carefully to the voice of reason and maybe that voice of reason will exactly come from your family and friends and your loved ones your closest those closest to you and if you're being torn in that direction again meditation the ability to recognize and discern when something in your mind or your heart is coming from your innermost being or is coming from your egos right this is why we practice all those core practices to be able to precisely be able to cope with and handle crises like the one we're talking about when we are being torn in two because the mind or the heart is being taken over by the ego and we don't know which one we don't know why we don't know what and somewhere in there, in the middle of that storm, is the still soft voice of truth and the guidance, which is going to get us through that storm and get us to where we need to go. But if we haven't been doing the practices, we don't know how to observe ourselves, we don't, how to, no, don't know how to remember ourselves, if we don't transform impressions, if we don't know how to meditate, if we don't pray, if we're not comfortable doing these things, we haven't practiced doing these things, then when the proverbial shit hits the fan and we're being torn in two, we've, we, we're lost in the storm. We're not skilled. We haven't practiced. It's like, it's like getting into the ring with Mike Tyson. But we haven't done the work. We haven't done the exercises. We haven't done the sparring. We haven't done the training. Like imagine a Rocky movie. Where Rocky gets in the ring, but there was no training montage. That's not a Rocky movie. You can't be Rocky that way. You can't be a hero that way without the training montage. You need that. You need the preparation. You need the development. You need all of that. You need to develop the skills and the muscles, the ability, and to be able to overcome your fear in the face of the adversary. That is how you cope with being torn between heart and mind. Preparation. Preparation. And staying calm and relaxed and conscious and aware. And knowing yourself. And then the path becomes clear. Anybody have any questions or comments to share? We're going to, um, we're going to see if we can um, bring our review session here to an end at, uh, at the two and a half hour mark. But by all means, if anybody wants to pop on, here's the link.
here's the link again. Or if anybody would like to just simply uh, type a question or a comment, you're more than welcome. Remember that the original, um, well, certainly Friday's lecture was on uh, YouTube. Oh, honestly, we're not sure about Wednesday. I don't think Wednesday's Wednesday was on. So that's why we spent so much time on that, um, on the uh, practices, the, the uh, practices part of today's um, live stream is because uh, last Wednesday's lecture is not on YouTube because the ban hadn't lifted yet, but it had lifted by Friday. So if you want a more extended or extensive uh, discussion about mind and heart, that video should be on YouTube for you. It should also be on Facebook, but the Wednesday video should also be on, should be on Facebook. And we're not sure how Twitch works, to be honest with you. We're not sure how, if you can, if you, if there's an archived series of videos there or not, or if it's just live only, we're really not that familiar with it. The only reason we jumped onto Twitch is because of YouTube getting banned for a week. And we may, we may, uh, uh, switch out Twitch in favor of Twitter. Uh, but we don't really like Twitter. We, we, we don't like the idea of being on Twitter, but Twitter does let you uh, put videos on live stream as well. So who knows? Maybe that's the better way to go. Uh, we don't know how many people have been watching on Twitch. We're going to have to look at all of metrics. Um, but anyway, any questions, any comments, any concerns? Because uh, if not, we want to thank all of you for uh, joining us today. And uh, we will do our best to uh, give advance notice. Uh, you can, generally speaking, expect Monday afternoons, sorry, Monday afternoons or Monday evening wherever, depending on where you are. So it's 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Every Monday, we'll be doing this review. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you next Monday then. And if you're able to tune in on Wednesdays and Fridays, please do so. But again, we'll do our best to give more advance notice than we did today. Today was a little bit of a strange day. So once again, thank you all for tuning in and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day and or evening. And um, we'll see you again soon. Inverential peace.